Welcome to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg on a Tuesday. A fat Tuesday. I know it is. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Welcome everybody. We got a fat show today. Lots coming your way. We're going to speak momentarily with police commissioner, new police commissioner, mm-hmm. Kevin Bethel. Then in the second segment today, we're talking about the Uptown Theater because WHYY has a new documentary yeah. premiering tonight about the Uptown Theater, legendary venue on North Broad Street. Mm-hmm. We're talking with soul singer Barbara Mason for yep. that segment and Temple historian Bryant Simon. Yeah, a lot of people love the Uptown Theater. Love Folks it. of a certain age, if you mention the Uptown, they'll yeah. tell you a bunch of stories. The nostalgia so, just comes pouring yeah, out. Yeah. So I know people want to share their stories with us, hopefully. Yeah, yeah and get those in now. Studio 2 at org, or give us a call 888-477-9499. And same with the commissioner because um, he's going to be with us for about 15 minutes. So we want to make sure if you have questions, get them in early. Mm-hmm. Studio 2 at org. 888-477-9499. Then end of the show, Cherry, we're talking about the 30th Street Station Flipboard, the beloved clickety-clack, the beloved clickety-clack. <laughs> um, Matt Gillum, our mm-hmm. Curiosities correspondent, investigates the fate of the clickety-clack. Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. I'm looking forward to hearing that. And you know he's going to have some good wordplay mm-hmm. in there, some clever little turns of phrase. Matt always brings he the He brings heat. it. He really does. He really does. But before we go to the rest of the show, we yeah. got to talk about the news. No heat today. No heat today. I woke up this morning, Avi, to the tap, tap, tippity sounds of rain on my window. <laughs> and then by the time I fully got well up, okay, I saw that it was slushy snow coming yeah. down out of the sky. So we're having a snow day in Philadelphia and in many parts of our region. And we predicted this when we talked about Groundhog Day. Yes. There was going to be another snow, but we would have an early spring. Well, this is the snow, y'all. So there were some snow days, some delayed starts for schools, speed limits lowered 45 miles per hour on some of the major highways, flights canceled in a couple of places, 30 or so flights, but not too bad. The good news is... You know, it's going to go away pretty soon. There's a big difference in my mind between mm-hmm. snow in mid-January, which you're like, all right, snow, nice. Snow mid-February is like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm tapping out. I'm this. tapping out. Get me to March. We're over this. But you know what? It was cute. It's that fat, like, hap, you know, drippy snow. So kids can <laughs> kids can do, like, you know, actual snowballs and like stuff that like that. I like that we're anthropomorphizing yeah. the snow. Sort of fat, yeah. drippy snow. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so. Let's talk about something down in Delaware. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about town gown relationships. Yeah. Things in Newark, Delaware, a little tense right now. Yeah. Because the city wants to levy a tax mm-hmm. on students who attend the University of Delaware. They want the right to levy a per student tax up to $50 per semester. And mm-hmm. the city council seems pretty united in their support of this measure. Mm-hmm. Students, not so happy. Mm-hmm. University, not so happy. The town says they have to do this because in Newark, about 42% of real estate is tax exempt, largely because mm-hmm. the university owns so much of the real estate and they are tax exempt. So they're saying, hey, we can't tax your property. We're going to tax your students. Yeah. And, and I get it. The students are upset um, because, you know, while it's this is a tax fee, on the yeah. university, they are afraid it's going to be passed on to them. And UD just raised tuition. It's 31000 plus if you are an in-state you know, student at the University mm. of Delaware. It's 54000 yeah. if you go to UD and you're from another state. Yeah. So it's not cheap for them. 
I get it. But, you know, in Philly, we've been having these same arguments. Should universities have to pay taxes? We have yep. big universities here. Yep. The city's losing out on a ton of real estate tax, millions and millions. And how do you make up for it? Because students do receive services like policing. And we're going to be talking to the commissioner. Of, yeah, today. All sorts of city services. All sorts of services like trash removal, all yep. these things, streets. We, it's snowing today. Somebody's removing that snow, probably the university, but some of them live off campus too. So, yeah. you know, no, it's, it's a, a huge, it's it's a big issue. You mentioned that it's a big issue here mm-hmm. in Philly. Uh, Penn has been the target of a lot of protests, actually, mm-hmm. because the fact that they don't pay any tax on their property and they don't pay any uh, taxes, sort of in lieu of what they call pilots yep, payments yep. in lieu of taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, UD does some pilots, but but they say that not mm-hmm. enough. And I think at the root of this. Uh, the the real core issue is that the idea of tax exemption for a university goes back decades. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to a time when universities were kind of quaint little things. Now they're big business. They're big, sprawling businesses making millions and millions of dollars. It's the Eds and Meds Mm -hmm. era. And so their tax exemption feels different today than it did 40, 50, 100 years ago. And and this is going to keep coming up. And some of these universities have billions of dollars in endowments. And so they're like, hey, city struggling. Let's tap on that. And so talking about a little bit of the struggle and expenses, Jenkintown in Montgomery County, they are considering whether to get rid of their police department because they say it's too expensive. Why? Well, apparently the borough there is spending half of its $5 million budget for 2024 on its police force. Wow. They only have wow. about a dozen officers, but officials there say training, salaries, pensions, and these random costs, they add up. So they're considering whether to contract their policing out to nearby Abington, Sheltonham, or to even the state police. The mayor there says this is a good idea because the cost of policing is outpacing the growth of the borough. The head of city council there says it could be a good thing because those other departments are larger. It would add efficiencies and make better use of taxpayer dollars. Lots of small municipalities, boroughs, townships have Mm -hmm. this problem. It's a recurring problem because, look, when you have your own little government unit, Mm -hmm. you get control, but you also get costs. Yeah. And that's the trade-off, you know, over and over and over again. And we've seen other municipalities that have dissolved police departments, merged mm-hmm. with others, so it's not uncommon. You know, I came from a place where basically the county police did all of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the municipal police departments were far and few between. And you think about it, if it's larger, you have a detective unit, you have like, like well, with it's the economies scale, of scale. Yeah. yeah, economies of scale, so there could be some benefits for Abington's. The, the decision isn't, you know, made yet, but it, they're strongly considering it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. WHYY's Kenny Cooper, story on Great story, right Kenny. now, WHYY.org. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the commissioner, one more story. Yeah. A love the story. first <laughs> kiss ever recorded. Mm-hmm. Maybe right here in Philadelphia. So here's the backstory. Where does kissing come from? There was genetic study in 2022 that suggested kissing started in India and spread out from there. But a pair of researchers, married researchers, thought otherwise. And their key piece of evidence is right here in Philadelphia. It's called the Barton Cylinder. You with me so far? I'm keeping up. (laughs) It's a clay tablet from ancient Sumeria, 2400 B.C. approximately. This tablet tells an ancient creation story, and it includes a reference to post-coital kissing, which is odd. It's post-coital. After play. Yeah, yeah, after play. Mm. (laughs) And it is, we believe... 
the oldest written account of kissing, um, and it sort of disrupts this narrative that kissing started in India and makes us think that maybe kissing started in a lot of places simultaneously. Ready for the Philly connection. Go ahead. This tablet's at Penn's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, and it's named after George Barton, who was a Bryn Mawr professor who translated the Barton Cylinder. So, first ever written account of kissing may be right here in Philadelphia. Look at Avi making a historical connection to <laughs> right in time for Valentine's Day. You go ahead Locked now. and loaded. I got it all. I love that. Um, and I will say, you know, this is the start of people writing about kissing. You could say... The continuum begins with the Barton Cylinder and ends with Fifty Shades of Gray. And we've just sort of been working our way up there for about 2,400 plus years, 4,400 years, you know? That's right. (laughs) You know, air kiss to you. Great story. Thank you. uh, There, Avi. And so now we're going to transition into our newsmaker uh, segment. Uh, Philadelphia's new police commissioner, Kevin Bethel, is with us now. He was tapped my mayor parker to replace daniel outlaw and he's spent just about a month on the job bethel is a veteran of the ppd with 30 years on the force and was most recently the chief of school safety for the school district of philadelphia that experience will be critical for tackling the big issues facing the city and the department gun violence the opioid epidemic staffing shortages commissioner kevin bethel a lot on your plate Thanks for spending some time with us here at Studio Two. Thank you for having me. I thank for that segue, your kissing segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you have thoughts happy on that. Valentine's yeah, to, to know, happy Valentine's Day. My wife, my daughters, and all the everyone out there in your listening audience. I love it. I love it. And so we're going to jump right in, um, Commissioner Bethel. Uh, the mayor has repeatedly said that public safety is her number one priority and that she wants to end this sense of lawlessness and restore a sense of order and lawfulness. Um, In many ways, that's my question to you is a two-parter. First, what does law and order look like to you? And what are a couple of the things you think the PPD needs to focus on to accomplish it? Well, I mean, law and order, I mean, really looks to me, you know, when we have a city that enforces the laws, right, that does not allow many of those quality of life issues that impact our community on a daily basis, addressing those. At the same time, addressing you know the violence that we see, we, we've often stayed very focused on the violence and 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 the crime that's occurring uh, across the city, particularly our shootings and homicides. But what we oftentimes forget about is all of the 60,000 60, other fences yeah. that are in impacting our community on a daily basis. And, and so that's why the mayor astutely, when she was creating her safety plan, you know uh, that we're embarking on now and embracing in our work, uh, was really focused on those quality of life issues that address, you know, impacts our community on a daily basis. And so when you don't address those issues, when you don't take a focus on all crime, then you give this feeling of lawlessness because people look around and say, well, you're not doing any of these mm-hmm. things. And, and so we very have to be very intentional in that work. And that's part of our work now as we build our crime plan uh, based off, as you saw, when I was appointed by the mayor and shortly after my inauguration, uh, she signed into law, you know, very, several um plans, uh, you know, that we have to take, emergency plans that we have to embark on, um, you, you know, ATVs, again, quality of life issue that, you know, often does not raise the bar, but drives many of our community members crazy as they fly down Broad Street, retail theft. Mm-hmm. You know, we say that as a small, but, you know, it's impacting our economy. It's impacting our small stores, our big box stores, uh, as we look at Kensington and the work we're going to do down in there. So we're really going to, we're working through our 100-day plan. 
uh, the mayor has tasked us with to complete in, in that time period to really put forth our initial plan, and then we'll follow up with with a much larger five-year strategic plan as to, you know, to share with the community what we'll be doing moving forward over the years. But if you're going to crack down on those quality of life mm-hmm. issues, um, what types of punishments will you levy? And do you worry mm-hmm. that that will you know, get people into a system, into a cycle that they cannot get out of? Because I do think that can be the criticism with mm-hmm. the lower level crackdown. I think we have to be careful, right? I mean, uh, it's a certainty that we often are missing. The consequences you can always been you know, negotiated, right? That's negotiated in the courtroom. Like, there's nobody expecting that someone arrested for retail, small level retail, would go into prison mm-hmm. for the, yeah, you know, I mean, for, you know, for any period of time, right? But the reality is the certainty uh, of the work, and then the consequences. As you know, I did a diversion program, yeah. right? Kids were being arrested, and we made the decision that we would divert them away from the rest, and we send it to programming. There's a certainty that the child was addressed the behavior that may have led to that diversion. There's a certainty of action in that. But at the end, the, the consequences are moving them into a, a model where they can get services. So might that yeah. be a model for someone arrested for low-level Absolutely. retail yeah, yeah. Like So we would use like a diversion-style program potentially. Yeah, yeah, I don't want this to – yeah. I mean, we're going to use a myriad of, of tools available to us, expanding our diversion work for young people who may be arrested for diversion – I mean, for retail theft. We have a pilot program now that will expand. I mean, the courts have diversionary tools uh, mm-hmm. that – but what you cannot do – is allow someone to walk into a store and just randomly steal items without any action taken. That's not going to benefit anyone, and it oftentimes creates this feeling of lawlessness that you can walk into any store in the city of Philadelphia and take whatever you want, and there will be no certainty of action. I mean, and that has to change, right? And and it's part of the work uh, that we're going to be embarking on. You've spent about 10 years, the past 10 years before coming back to PPD, sort of working on diversion and, and working to crack that school to prison pipeline. What did you learn from that work as far as the balance between law and order, right, and this whole police reform? Yeah, I, I really have learned a lot in that work is, is to, you know, as I started down my diversion work, I wasn't sure what it meant uh, when you heard that a kid has been traumatized you know, a kid who grew up in a neighborhood, pull up, yeah, your bootstraps. You know, I mean, I got out the neighborhood. Why can't you? Until I really learned what trauma was. Right. I wasn't sexual abuse. I wasn't physical abuse. I wasn't placed in a you know foster home or my parents were not in the house, had a strong mom raised by a single mother. And so that work started to inform me about how oftentimes because our kids live in such difficult environments that they how it manifests itself. We can't ignore the fact that we have some of the most poor, we're one of the poorest cities in the nation, but we have some pockets that are almost double that, right? And, and so we know what happens in that. And so what I learned from that is, you know, oftentimes our kids act out in a way because that's what they've learned in the space that they're in. And we have the opportunity, particularly like in our diversion, to redirect them into a different direction, right? We know that a child who has an, a, one positive adult in their lives can totally change the trajectory of where they're going. And so me going into the school district really helped me see that even more because I was with those kids on a daily basis. And quick follow up for that. I mean, how do you apply some of the things you learned to a place like Kensington, where that is a top priority for the city as well? Like, how do you apply that, but also like making people feel safe and deal with a problem that, you know, they 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 want to see change happen? Yeah. I mean, we will do a phase approach. I mean, I will share that. 
it's not acceptable that we, I mean, I understand the issue of addiction, but when you have children who have to live in a situation where they're looking at needles on the ground and people are defecating on the streets and, and exposing the community overall, we're going to do a phase approach you know, in our work to really make the awareness early part of our operations will be working with our collaborative partners. You know what I mean? Uh, we've, I, you know, I appointed the, the Commissioner Pedro Rosario to lead that work. He's down on the ground now meeting with those entities. So we'll start a, flow, a, a slow process of awareness, working with those individuals to get them to give them the opportunity to move off the street. When we do move into a space of enforcement, we're also continuing to have that part of our work to give people the opportunity. When we do make an arrest, to give them the opportunity to move them into services, move them into programming, to get them out of their addiction, uh, you know, help them with their addiction. And, and so we'll have a, a very humane uh, uh, process. But we are going to uh, clean up Kensington. We are going to give the community the relief that they've been asking for years. It is not acceptable, as, as I've shared in many conversations, to be sitting at a school in Conwell Middle School where you know my t- principal's attacked with a knife and a, scr- a screwdriver or that bullets are coming through a school across the street, and we believe that activity is acceptable. And, and so we have to take a, ver- a very comprehensive approach in dealing with Kensington. So in the case of Kensington, mm-hmm. then, if, you know, there's someone who's using drugs, not selling drugs, using mm-hmm. drugs, um, and they are arrested maybe once or twice, and they do refuse whatever services you're providing, that means they're going to, to prison, essentially? Uh, well, we'll see how that goes, right? I mean, we'll walk through that process as we bring individuals in, we're very hopeful that we create a very comprehensive model uh, that we will be able to convince that person to get into treatment, whether that continuous behavior is going to result in them going into, uh, you know, incarcerated or held in prison will be something the courts will determine. But we are not going to ignore the, the, the ability to use enforcement uh, to be able to take, uh, you know, to be able to restore uh, the area back to where it should be. So, so uh, simply put, people will be arrested. People will be arrested. Yeah. Uh, there was a recent um, sort of a, a number of arrests recently in Kensington. Um, and we did a report on WHYY.org that folks were um, residents there were saying they saw an increased presence in police. Uh, they were worried about over policing. Um, I want you to speak to those residents who want safer streets. Right. But at the same time, don't want to feel like, you know, there is this increased scrutiny of their individual actions. Well, I mean, it's a balanced approach, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is, I mean, you know, uh, know, a particular organization was doing, you know, search warrants down in that area. I mean, we have to understand that underneath all of the open-air drug market, that is one of the most lucrative drug areas in America, right, Mm -hmm. and on the East Coast. Right. And so there is a responsibility from law enforcement to continue to address the level of drugs coming out of that community. I mean, so to your earlier point, I'm I'm arresting people on the street who may have, you know, possession or or, or user. But what what is also driving uh, the issue of drugs in that area and citywide and up the East Coast are individuals who are selling fentanyl or heroin and other high level products on our on our streets. And so we have a duty to do all of that and make sure that and there was a large seizure in that in that that operation that happened over there and so we're going to we're going to go across the entire spectrum those who are selling drugs are also going to become under scrutiny and will remain under scrutiny as we continue to do our work not just in Kensington but across the city can i i want to ask you a broader criminology question here during the early part of the pandemic we saw this huge spike 
in, in murders here in Philadelphia, but really across the country. Now it's started to come down here in Philadelphia and across the country. And the whole time, the conversation was about what police are doing or not doing. And this seems like it's what always happens when there's a crime wave in either direction. And I'm sitting here wondering whether policing has anything to do with this at all. And it's really just a reflection mm -hmm. of you know, an unstable or destabilized society. When you see big crime waves, do you think, hey, your first order thought is, what are police doing? Or, or do we have the wrong way of thinking about these crime waves, which do seem cyclical on some level? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, let's take your issue of, of, of the COVID and having the highest number of homicides and shootings in the history of Philadelphia. We knew, and, and folks would say that, right, that COVID, because of everything shutting down, you know, it, that would cause this spike. And so we're seeing a natural, you know, regression to the mean is, right. is indicated across the city um, where, you know, many of the big cities across the city, across the nation are, are starting to trend down. But we're also seeing that we're trending still above, you know, pre-COVID, but still above our, our numbers where we should be. And, and so uh, does policing have an absolute uh, uh, part of that? Absolutely. Right. And but it is also a collective group. Of, of individuals who are working in this space. So we can't do it by ourselves. You know, it's the community work that we're doing alongside of our community partners uh, that also helps that. Uh, but there are, I think uh, I would make the argument, you know, uh, that if policing doesn't have, policing has a role in, 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 the, in keeping order in, 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 our, in our community. Um, and so, um, but it's not the complete, you know, we're part of a system. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not just the policing that, that is the only ones uh, who, who can help that. But there are certain trends that we can see that we can actually move police officers into areas, you know, whether we're using hotspot policing, place based policing, offender focused policing. And we can see through the data that by doing that in an effective and strategic way, we can see reductions. It's not the sole reductions, but there's clearly you know, a role that policing plays in reducing violence in the city of Philadelphia. So I want to zoom out a bit because, um, you know, you you were at the PPD for 29 years, took 10 years, did some other work, very okay. meaningful work. And now you're back at PPD. I, I want to talk about morale um, within the department because it had been really low. I had talked to officers. Um, it was tough to recruit because of that. How has morale, what's the status of morale and how are you doing to shift that and 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 then how is that when you tie it to recruiting and trying to, to fill some of those vacancies? Well, it, it all ties together to your point. Well, we need, to, you know, morale is, is one of the fuels that does all of it, gives us all the fuels to get up in each and every day. Uh, it, yes, can, I will sit here and tell you that the morale of the police department is very low for a combination of things. Coming out of the, the uh, um, riots and, and, and other activity and then going through a phase where the funding Policing and, and the loudest voice saying that we don't want you in our community. We don't even though that goes well against the uh, studies and the surveys that have been put out into even our more marginalized communities. What they say they want good policing, constitutional policing, but they do want policing in their communities. Yeah. And so when they when these these voices uh, have been the voices that the men and women have been hearing for the last five years, my objective and the mayor who has been totally supportive of our law enforcement and, and the work that I'm about to embark on is really elevating us back to who we are. We get back to being, if you have a young officer who walks into a, the door five years ago and told, don't do anything, you're not valued, you're not this, you're not that, 
then then oftentimes what would you expect that officer to engage in and have their morale high? Yeah. My job is to get them to back to being police officers again, mm-hmm. getting back to doing very good constitutional community-based policing that the mayor has gave our charge, and then let the folks let the, let you start to report about all the good things that we're doing in our community, all the good things that we're bringing and the success we're having. And through that process, you know, we definitely believe if we brand ourselves right, we communicate properly, we can start to bring in. Some people are going to come here as guardians mm-hmm. because they want to do mentoring and they want to work in the community. And some men and women are going to come here because they want to be a warrior, right? They like the, you know, coming from a military background. They like the, you know, come in, but also understanding how to do community policing. And so I think as we elevate our product and elevate who we are as an entity, uh, we can be says, well, we have some of the best men and women in the city or fill up with police officers. They want to do good in our community, and I'm going to create every opportunity for them to be that partner with the community that we serve. We're wrapping up now, but you're here at the beginning mm-hmm. of, of your tenure as commissioner. We hope you come back on the show a year, two, three years from now. Or even sooner. Or even sooner. You always come back. If you come back three years from now, real quick, what would you have liked to accomplish, let's say, by three years? Uh, I, I'm hopeful that the mayor has put forth a larger plan of safety, you know, uh, for us as an agency, and as, a, as a city. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, we've restored hope, that the community feels hope again. Because um, it's not just about the numbers. It's how those individuals... But is there a number, before we wrap up, that you would, that you would really want to move? Yeah, well, I mean, I want to move all the numbers, right? I want to see fewer homicides in the city of Philadelphia. I was fortunate enough to work under Commissioner Ramsey where we got the numbers well below 200, 300. And though we're staffing officers, I think we can be there again. I want to see few, fewer young people being shot on our, on our streets. I want to see people, fewer people arrested and be able to do it in an effective way. But we have to have hope, and I got hope. And we hope you do come back, by oh, the I way, <laughs> Not in, in less than a year. Right. Uh, that's Philadelphia Police Commissioner Kevin Bethel. Thanks for joining us today on Studio 2. Right. Thank you for having me. And coming up, funk, soul, and music legends. We're talking about Philadelphia's Uptown Theater. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, there is a new documentary coming to WHYY-TV tonight. It is called The Uptown Theater, Movies, Music, and Memories. It is the story of a legendary performance venue at Broad and Dolphin Streets. You could see big names such as James Brown, The Supremes, Barbara Mason, and Georgie Woods going in and out on a regular basis. And while the building remains closed these days, the spirit of the performance venue, it is very much alive. And it is with us today as we talk about the Uptown. And here with us in studio is Temple professor and historian Bryant Simon, who is also part of this WHYY documentary. Bryant, welcome to Studio Two. Glad to be here. And then just back from sunny Southern California, Philly music legend, Barbara Mason is with us to share her memories of the Uptown. Barbara Mason, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you very much. And how is everyone doing? We're doing well, especially since you're here. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And we want to hear from you listeners. Share your favorite memory of the Uptown. Give us a call, 888-477-9499, or email studio2 at whyy.org. And so, you know, the Uptown Theater still looms very large on North Broad Street in North Philly, but it is truly a mere shell of itself. And so, uh, Brian, I want to start with you. Take us back 
historically to the glory days of the Uptown Theater. Describe what it looked like and what it likely meant to the community. Well, the first thing probably we want to know about the Uptown is it started as a movie theater. But it started when movie theaters were these palaces. They were built to wow and overwhelm people. And so that movie theater with the kind of constellations on the ceiling and gilded um, toppings and a velvet curtain, that was all there in mm-hmm. the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s. And, you know, if you take one of these kind of legendary performances in the 60s, you would they would start as early as noon or before noon, and you might get seven or eight acts that would play for hours. And by the end, the bands, maybe the Temptations and maybe the Stylistics would be in full-on competition with each other, mm-hmm. trying to win the loudest applause and, and bring the house down. And uh, you mentioned it started as a movie theater in the, it, right, right at the end of the 20s, right? Yeah. Open right before the great um, right the before, stock market not crash. Not good timing. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but it has this comeback as a as a performance venue. Fifties, sixties, Bryant. Tell me about the neighborhood that the Uptown was in. Well, you have to understand the Uptown's part of like a, a circuit of theaters that sometimes gets called the the Chitlin Circuit, and there was a place where black performers perform for black audiences. Mm-hmm. The neighborhood was largely black. But it was also, I mean, I think it's important to understand that segregation also created these opportunities. This was a place that nurtured black art and nurtured black performers and allowed people to see the kind of beauty of those performances. And, and I think it's really important to understand the uptown of, of this moment, right? It's this moment of segregation that we've come to believe, and, and we should, right, of its oppressive qualities, but it also created opportunity. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, black artists performing for uh, a black audience, I want to cue up this uh, this clip. We have many visitors, including Dr. Bernita Brown, Olivia Riley and Vivian Whitehead. Gary, remember the Isley brothers (laughs) and their legendary performances at the Uptown. Take a listen. You know, you make me want to. Isley brothers would come in and they would fly through the air and the audience would just be pumped up and ready to go. Every time they sang Shout, the audience threw their hands up, jumped up and down. It was just crazy in there. It was like they was never going to end it. (laughs) I mean, we were down there screaming and hollering. It had to be over half an hour, 45 minutes. And it felt like the whole building was jumping up and down. It was a completely filled audience. Von Osley, you know, he get loose. You know, opening the shirt and throwing the tie, and it was just wonderful. Yes, they were the greatest. Now wait a minute. I tell you, I have a I big smile on my right face. Now. I want to yeah. shout too. <laughs> I want to bring Barbara Mason into the conversation. Barbara is a Philly native who not only attended events at the Uptown, but also performed. Barbara, I want to just ask you, first of all, what did the Uptown Theater mean to you as a member of the community and as one who sat in that seat within the audience? It really meant to me, um, I started very, um, I was very young when I went to the Uptown. I was only 18 years old. That was my first performance. And uh, um, when I was asked to um, perform there, 
um, I really got a chance to um, work with a lot of of legends uh, like Gladys Knight and the Pips, the Dells, um, and just being that young and being in uh, that environment. Of course, I was raised uh, in North Philadelphia, so I knew I knew about the whole area, and uh, also um, people coming from my neighborhood to come see me there. I was a bit um, kind of nervous and stuff my first time uh, being in a uh, venue of that of that magnitude. But uh, I, I've i always cherished it. It was the first theater that I had ever worked with, uh, worked at. And it still, you know, means a lot to me today. Barbara, how would you describe the audience at the Uptown compared to, you know, other venues you played? They were remarkable, as the um, young lady just said. I mean, <laughs> something about Philadelphia people, um, you know, like their loyalty. They would. I know when I came on to do my song, um, they were they were just. It's just different. I, I can't really explain it. Um, they were very appreciative. Um, of course, we would be there like for ten days, and then we would have the midnight show, and. People, the lines were out there, and it was just—it was just awesome. I will—I will never forget it um, because that's where I first started. So it's—I've been all over, and I haven't seen um, an audience, you know, like that. Wow. And and Bryant, I mean, explain a little bit about the the Chitlin Circuit and the need for the Uptown and how things shifted once integration happened. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we have to remember is segregation was a national phenomenon. And so black artists couldn't play anywhere. And they played a series of theaters, many of them white-owned, up and down the East Coast, into the South, and into the Midwest. And this is where they could perform. Mm. But because it was a limited market... They were paid less and had to perform more. And, and essentially what happens is the neighborhood around the uptown decays somewhat. But I think the, the more important thing is that segregation breaks down. And someone like Stevie Wonder can play the spectrum mm. for five times as many people. Way more money. And one set. He's yeah. not playing five sets a day for a 10-set gig. Yeah. And so the kind of really most dynamic and kind of most popular performers get pulled out by the old Latin casino in Cherry Hill. And think about it, this also happens when the casinos open in Atlantic City. And they just sort of suck out the talent, Mm. right? They take the best of the talent or the most popular, leaving this kind of other set of groups with almost no place to play or much diminished theaters. And the uptown itself begins to crumble. And by 1990... It's a evangelical church. Barbara, can you explain the, the economics from your mm-hmm. end? Like how mm-hmm. much would you get paid for performing at the Uptown? And then sort of as your career progressed um, and you played other venues, did that change, you know, your personal financial situation? It did. Yes, absolutely. Um, I can remember probably getting maybe less than $1,000 mm-hmm. uh, when I did go on the road uh, to do tours in and, and and such, I probably got about seventeen fifty a week, mm. and you know, like I said, we did. I mean, I was in every venue all through the South, as you said, everywhere. I played everywhere, and uh, money wise, you could um, see a number of acts 
and the top figure that I remember was probably $3.50 that you would see 20 acts. And so you can imagine who gets what from $3.50. So nobody was really making money. I mean, even the top acts, you know, the uh, stars of Jackie Wilson's, I was on many of his of uh, his shows. He wasn't making, I mean, he was making more than me. But we, you know, nobody made any money. Yeah, but people love the Uptown. And one person that we know um, loves the Uptown is Barbara. um, Kai. Kai, who is um, on the line and wants to talk about growing up, going to the Uptown. Kai, you're on Studio 2. Are you with us? I think we might have lost Kai. Hi, Kai. Hello, no, I'm still here. You love the Uptown, growing up Uptown. Yes, Tell us your story. Go, I started going to the Uptown when I was about six or seven. My mother would take <laughs> me to the night shows, which were different than the day shows. Mm. So I got to see the uh, the comedians like Moms Mabley and Red Fox and Pick Meat Markham that were very risque. But uh, I, I lived in Strawberry Mansion, so we could actually walk to the Uptown, really. I lived on 28th Street. And uh, and actually, the Uptown, the demise of the Uptown, really didn't have anything to do with integration. Because parts of North Philly, we still had white people living on our street. So, But when the Spectrum opened uh, down in South Philly, that was a huge stadium, you know, where, where they had shows. So the, uh, uh, produced, the producers and everything wanted to have shows there because they could get more people in there. So, you know, why why would you book the Uptown with maybe 500, 1,000 people can fit in there when you can fit uh, two, three, 4,000 people in the Spectrum so that everybody start having concerts at the Spectrum? And sadly, that's what happened to the Uptown. But huh. I love it. I will always, uh, I will always uh, cherish those days. To, um, Apollo has nothing on the Uptown. So. <laughs> All right. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you so much, Kai. Yeah, before we go, and that's a wonderful call. Thank you. I just want to make sure we, we mention... Georgie Woods, uh, yes. the legendary DJ, but that really doesn't do him justice. Brian, can you just quickly talk about you know his role in making the the Uptown what it was? Yeah, Georgie Woods was famous DJ in town, and he started producing the shows at the Uptown. And he would he would book the acts he played on the radio, but that's not where Georgie Woods stopped. He was a really crucial civil rights figure in the city. And the Uptown was part of that. So the NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had fundraisers at the Uptown that Georgie Wood sponsored. And in 1963, when the buses left Philadelphia to go to the March on Washington, they left from the Uptown with Georgie Woods on them. And he would he would march in Selma. He was I think there's a really interesting kind of intersection between yeah. the Uptown and the civil rights movement. Yeah. Yeah. And, Bar- and DJs were a big deal back then. I think, Barbara, you, you were yes. managed by a DJ, right? Jimmy Bishop? Oh, yes. Yes, I was. Yes. Jimmy uh, managed me. He sure did. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we wrap up, Barbara, do you have any Georgie Wood memory that you want to share? Oh, God. I miss him <laughs> so much. Yes. I know he was the first promoter, too booked me at the Uptown, mm. and by him, you know, being on WDAS and one of the top uh, disc jockeys there, he was a wonderful, kind person. Uh, um, and, you know, he just didn't play, like, certain people's records, and then he didn't play certain people's other records. He, he was fair to everyone, mm. and um, I I just miss him. I had a personal uh, friendship with him. We would talk in yeah. the mornings on radio. Sometimes I would I would call the station and and just say thank you. I heard my record this morning. 
you know, and so it was, it was. There it is. And he, yeah, he was the greatest. Yeah. That, that, that and is that your is a record, record playing <laughs> yes, right now. Already. Thank you so much, Barbara Mason, yes, for being it. with us today. I hear it. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> and thank, thank you, you, Brian Simon uh, from Temple, for, sure, for helping us understand the Uptown Theater. And by the way, that documentary, 7.30 tonight, WHYY TV, Channel 12. Check it out. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. Cherry... Just like smells, mm. sounds can transport us back in time, like that Uptown Theater segment. Yeah. You hear a sound, and immediately you're thrown into the past. Ooh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, no one misses those old dial-up modems, that's for sure. But there is an old technology with a distinct sound that many do miss. The 30th Street Station Flipboard, sometimes called a split-flap display that used to alert Philadelphia travelers of train arrivals and departures. The board was removed in 2019, but that familiar sound of the cascading tiles is still fondly remembered by travelers. And as WHYY's Matt Gillum reports, there's a chance that we could hear that again. Ah, the train station, specifically Philly's 30th Street station. It's an Art Deco icon awash in the sounds of life. This is the last call for Amtrak South Train number 2172 and route to Boston South Station. People are coming and going, and the soaring concourse echoes with loudspeaker announcements, the frequent squeak of a sneaker on the marble floor, and the din of a hundred conversations. But there's one sound that's been conspicuously absent from the clangor of 30th Street for a few years now. Waiting for a train, Brittany Nogales just noticed the sound's departure. From across the concourse and over all the noise, you can hear her... Making sound effects. <laughs> but specifically, sound effects of the old... The, the cascading sound effects of the old sign. I was reminiscing at how it's, it's gone. Can you, can you give me the sound? <laughs> It's a spot-on impression of the now mothballed split-flap sign that anchored the station from 1971 to 2019. Primarily made by the Italian company Solari, split-flap signs and their cavalcade of characters were staples of train stations. For decades, looking at the departures was more than a visual experience. You'd see the schedule move, and you'd hear... Things got a little quieter in January of 2019 when Philadelphia's Solari Board, which was one of the last to still be operating in a major train station, was put out to pasture in favor of a digital sign. A non-scientific survey of some people in the concourse resulted in mm, faint praise for the bright screens that supplanted the Solari. Marty Wiener has passed through the station for 30 years. The digital sign... Well, it's fine. It's easy to read, certainly. But I, I miss the clackety-clack of the tile. It's a similar sentiment from Brittany Nogales. The new sign's nice and everything. I can see everything clearly, but <laughs> there was just kind of like this nice tactile, the sound of it, the sight of it, everything was just pleasing and reassuring, I guess. For Lori Olin, it was the dynamism of the split flap. 
I don't know. I just I'd seen them in Europe and I'd grown fond of them. There there was a sound and a kind of things happening about it. There was, I liked the action of it. As for the glowing screen showing today's trains, there's a note of resignation in his voice. Well, yeah, it's part of our digital world, you know. Not as interesting. Screens may have completed their invasion of our pockets and public spaces, but in North Philly's Bridesburg neighborhood, there's an outpost of analog. Housed in an old ammunition factory is Oat Foundry, a local business that makes split flaps from start to finish. We're now the world leader in, in manufacturing these. Mark Kuhn is one of the half dozen co-founders of Oat Foundry and its CEO. The original team met while in the mechanical engineering program at Drexel, and in 2013, they started the business. While they looked at patents and schematics from Solari, the centuries-old Italian sign manufacturer, the Oat Foundry gang developed their own motors, flaps, and font for their 21st century version of the signs. I mean, the OG boards are programmed with punch cards, if that takes you back. Fittingly, today's analog signs can be programmed via a computer or a phone, a.k.a. a screen. But while the back-end tech is modern, the split flap itself nails that old, intangible component so many seem to miss. The sound is iconic. It's certainly one of the most complimented aspects of it. He demonstrates. That's your standard board refresh. Loud, authoritative, and probably just like you remember. However, Kuhn says some of their global clients want a quieter clack, which they achieve by having fewer tiles turn over simultaneously and slowing down the appearance of the message. Even though he sees and hears the signs every day, Kuhn still seems to revel in the symphony for the senses they offer. When I look at the split flap signs, we know that it's a motor turning something mechanical, something physical that you can see and you can hear and you know how that works. It's just on the edge of comprehension of all the, it's kind of dancing between magic and understandable. Warm memories of that dance at 30th Street keep bubbling up as Amtrak undertakes a massive refurbishment of the station. It's like a 500-something million dollar deal to renovate 30th Street and to, to rebuild that whole area. And every time they, they've released news about it, overwhelmingly people from the region say, you know, bring, what about the split flap display? Bring back the board, bring back the board. That's the plan, says Abigail Barman, Amtrak's assistant program director for the 30th Street renovation. Yeah, so I feel like there's a lot of nostalgia associated with the sign. It will be coming back in a non-functional manner. The revitalization of 30th Street is a half a billion dollar project and will prepare the station for the next 50 years of its life. Barman can't explain why the defunct Solari board continues to have a hold on travelers' imaginations, but she says it'll return before the end of the decade. We'll probably bring it back towards 27 when we're done with the construction area. Oat Foundry has reached out about putting some kind of split flap sign in the station so the unmistakable clack returns, but... Right now there are no definite plans for any Solari board or Solari board-esque sound. The CEO of Oat Foundry, Mark Kuhn, offers a rosier outlook. We're excited and they're excited to figure out how to bring a working Oat Foundry split flap into the station... Back at 30th Street, the concourse is humming, and Abby Schmidt is glancing at the monitors listing the departures. It's just another screen for us to look at, right? You know, we're used to this. It's blue light. We get to see another sign that is an eyesore. Her preference is clear, but she's caught wind of some Solari scuttlebutt. But I've heard rumors that it's coming back, right? The old, the old one's coming back? It is, but right now it's stored and on display at the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania. Oh! 
it's in storage. For now. And when it returns... I want it to be click-clacking and doing its thing. Unfortunately, it's going to be static and not making noise. But there's a chance a different split-flap could add that click-clacking to the soundtrack of the station. I don't love that. That's not as enticing to me. It doesn't have the same charm. (laughs) The refurbishment of 30th Street is underway, but opinions on the sign still run deep. With a little bit of radio magic, we can imagine what the concourse might sound like if a new split flap took up residence. As tracks are laid for 30th Street's next half century, odds are good the Solari branch line will run between a rock and a hard place. For Studio Two, I'm Matt Gillum. Symphony for the senses. Matt Gillum does it again. The Never curiosities correspondent. Just <laughs> live like, it up to his name. Listen to that alliteration, Matt. <laughs> High five for you. <laughs> He'll be back. We love Matt. Um, before we go, mm-hmm. I'm going to. Tell something about something. Oh, go ahead. Lay it out. This is a little unsanctioned thing we're doing before the show. If you follow Cherry, at Cherry Gregg Mm -hmm. on Instagram, we're going live every day before the show for about 30 minutes for something we're calling office hours. Yes. It's basically just us prepping for the show and people come through on Instagram live and chat with us. Yeah. And one person said, I look terrible today. But they said it it was love. But they said it with love and it was fair because I do. Um, but if you want to join troll. office hours, Studio <laughs> 2 office hours, follow Cherry at Cherry Greg or me at Avi underscore WA on Instagram. Come through, say hi, and see what it looks like when we prep for the show. And you can also ask us a question. Or and, two. Or two. And that, friends, is it for our show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Besser, and Andreas Copes. Diana Martinez is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I am Cherry Greg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. I'm going to look better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us, folks. (laughs)